Welcome to the Different People Podcast, where we explore inclusion, diversity, and belonging in conversations about the often untold experiences of different people. These conversations are candid, spontaneous, and can sometimes be difficult. Yet they are necessary and critical to the healthy functioning of communities, organizations, and society as a whole. My name is Lisa Schmidt. I'm a leadership coach, a senior consultant in organizational development, and a professional speaker. And my name is Dr. Raymond Abdurrahman. I'm a clinical and consulting psychologist, an expert in diversity and inclusion, executive coach, and a professional speaker as well. And we are your hosts. So we'd like to welcome you back to the Different People podcast. This is our second episode of our second season. And the theme that Raymond and I are exploring for uh, this season is really around diversity, inclusion, belonging, equity, how all of this fits within our organizational lives, within our workplaces, within our organizational relationships, and particularly how it works with leadership. And one of the things that has been kind of common to the comments that we received when we sent out a request for help us come up with some ideas for the second season was the question around if we want to change organizations and the way that organizations do or don't do diversity and inclusion initiatives very well, How do we actually help organizations when ultimately organizations are made up of people and it's people who might need the new adaptive ways of thinking and growing and learning in order to be more inclusive? So, Raymond, I'd like to, you know, when you hear this, what do you hear and and what are your thoughts? Yeah, this comment came in from Rosie Young. She's... um a business professional who uh, runs the Changing Lenses podcast. And I found that comment to be very insightful from her. She had been talking a lot on her podcast about her own, her own shift and her own work. Even though um, she's a Canadian of Chinese descent, she talks about addressing her own biases and her own racism, internalized and otherwise. And ultimately, I think her comments reflect something I think all of us need to start to be able to do is to start to make ourselves better people. I think we sterilize the workplaces. We've mentioned in a previous podcast of emotion. We go to that sense, as we mentioned earlier, that our, our workplace is quote unquote professional. And so we, we treat them like uh, we treat our workplaces kind of like chemical labs. We don't give people the information or the awareness of the process. Uh, it's just about what needs to happen. And we, we miss out on a lot when it comes to that. And I think it prevents us from becoming better people. Uh, we treat organizations as a separate entity, but we don't treat them as human-based entities. So you had mentioned earlier a quote from Rumi and, uh, you know, uh, the Persian poet. Now, I, I would like to clarify, I think the, the Muslim poet and philosopher you know, that the work that needs to be done is the invisible work. What was that quote again, Lisa? Do you remember that? It was was along the lines of, we must work as hard in the invisible world 
as we work in the visible world. Absolutely. Okay. So thank you for that. That invisible work is a psychological work. And I think when we work on diversity and inclusion and the way leaders tend to address it is we're not doing that invisible work. And by invisible work, we're not working on the psychological work. And by psychological work, I mean the personal work that needs to be done to be able to make this change. You and I had chatted about this briefly earlier. When organizations get quote unquote serious about wanting to address inclusion and equity in their workplace, in their organization, even in their cities, what they tend to do is they relegate it, they ghettoize it, and they have a single person who becomes the diversity and inclusion officer, or they have a committee, which is seen as a bigger thing. It's like, now we've got a committee. And what it does is it takes the responsibility out of the leader's hands for being able to make that personal change and passes it off to other people who have the same barriers or, you know, they have more barriers than the leader does. And many people who get into these roles end up quitting. They have difficulty making success and changing culture because once again, what we've done is we've, we've externalized a problem to something outside of ourselves. And if we're going to be working as leaders, uh, as future leaders, as thought leaders, we need to be able to consider the work of shifting our own thinking and our own emotion. Therefore, we can shift an organizational culture. Absolutely. And what I find really interesting is there's kind of, and this is by no means uh, dismissive of the efforts that leaders are making in organizations, but there's quite a bit of song and dance. And what I mean by that is we know that increasing diversity and creating inclusive cultures is a business imperative. Sometimes I wonder if it's a societal imperative, but we know for sure that organizations are very much interested in, I mean, they're using the language, right? So CEOs are signing pledges, big announcements are made around hiring targets, codes of conduct are updated with zero tolerance policies on harassment and discrimination. There are all kinds of targets for internal marginalized groups to advance from frontline positions into their first leadership positions, scholarships, internships, and, you know, and specifically what you said, diversity and inclusion officers, departments, committees, but, you know, to just echo what you said, we're asking people who we, and I mean, we as the dominant culture have relegated to the margins and have the least amount of power to drive the change. Mm-hmm. While the dominant culture doesn't do that internal psychological work, right? So it's almost as if we're further entrenching this hierarchy of whiteness and maleness at the top and that the change has to happen everywhere except within myself, myself yeah. as the leader and in my thinking. So help me understand this, Raymond, like how... I mean, you, you do this work, you go into organizations, you speak about this. Where do we start to make the actual changes to how people think and how people feel? I want to reverse that question to you too, because you work with organizational change too. So I think it's important for us to have both these perspectives. But for me, when I do this work, you know, the research shows that these individual workshops really don't make a change. And when I do the work, I try to, because I realize that when I come into an organization, it might be the one opportunity to be able to create change. And so when I do 
do that work. I try to make it as long lasting as possible by trying to encourage an insight oriented change. I don't want to talk about hiring policies. I don't want to talk about the number of people to get into leadership, although those things are really important. I want to talk about the barriers that prevents that. I want to go to the root of the problem. And the root of the problem is ultimately how we perceive things. It's tied to our biases. It's tied to our lack of urgency. It's tied to our sense of complacency. And so the work I do is really around shifting that. Actually, that's how you and I met, right? This is through some of this work. That ultimately is where I think we need to be able to have that sense of regular accountability. And I make that recommendation. I said, thank you for hiring me. Uh, Thank you for having me to come and do this work. Uh, But if this is the only thing you're going to do, I'm afraid you're not going to reach your goal. That this needs to be on the docket on a regular basis. And not just as an organization, but individually. And so I encourage people to start to look inwards, to be able to look at what perspectives they they might have that prevent them as leaders, uh, you know, at any level within an organization that is actually getting in the way of true sense of equity and inclusion. Now back at you, Lisa, what, what, how would yeah. you approach this from an yeah. uh, organization no, I'm, development I'm, perspective? It's a great question. And, and I think that's where some of the strength lies between your approach and my approach. So I'm really interested in particularly in team dynamics about what's not happening and what we're colluding in not allowing to be said or not allowing to be expressed or even how conversations happen that make it sound like something is happening. So we're, we're, ta- we're action planning, we're talking about activities, we're gonna be measuring, but we're denying the fact that so much of the conversation is not happening. And you know, I'll give you an example about this, mm-hmm. is particularly when you're in a group of leaders, so I'm talking some senior leaders who are all also with their, let's say their CEO. So let's, let's talk about the very top of the organization. There might be an unstated uh, group norm that no decision is made without the CEO in the room. So conversations can be had, decisions are made, but they're all aligned with what everyone understands is going to make the CEO happy. And I'm not pointing, you know, there's, there's nothing wrong with doing the right thing to please your boss if it in fact is the right thing. But if groups of leaders are colluding into being liked by their leader and not addressing the real issues that are happening on the team, they have no way of helping the teams who report into them below them. So what I'm getting at with that is when people say to me, and they can either say, come, you know, come and coach this person who works for me, I'm having a really hard time with them, or my team is not being particularly effective, you know, the people reporting into me, my first place of questioning is the individual who's made that diagnostic and that assessment. Because if you think the problem is outside of you, i.e., with diversity inclusion, the problem is we're not hiring enough. The problem is not we're not bringing enough, you know, inspirational speakers to get people to change how they're like, if you always think that the problem is something is is an action or an activity, as opposed to self reflection. You know, I think this is where you and I align. It's very hard to do anything that is change or even looks like change. Yeah, 150%. You and I've had these discussions before. What this comes down to at the end of the day is a culture shift. 
Because what we're looking to do is to have everybody within an organization, black, white, brown, yellow, anybody. We need each of us to start to be able to question what it is that we think that creates barriers to equity and inclusion. Now, the dilemma is you cannot do that without a culture that promotes that. And you cannot have a culture of doing that unless the leader is doing that themselves. And that's why this work mm. begins right up at the very top. So we often talk about leaders and I work with a lot of leaders. So many of them are well-meaning, kind individuals who are definitely not identifying as racist. Absolutely not. This is not about intentional racism. This is about a psychological process of defensiveness that makes us think that this is a problem that somebody else will manage. This is ultimately a bystander effect. We think that when we hear somebody shouting that they're in pain, that somebody else has got this job, that the podcast that you and I do will cover this, that the DNI officer will, will cover this, that the committee will manage this. We're not looking as leaders to say, what is it that I'm doing or not doing that's contributing to a culture? Leaders lead, they set, there's a psychological concept called modeling. They set a trend. When the leader does something, it shifts culture because everyone follows. You talk about pleasing the boss. What if the boss is saying, I've made this error. This is the way that I think, and this has to change. And I'm going to do this, and I encourage all of you to do the same. Well, that's, you know, totally on point. You know, I, I've often said to leaders when I'm coaching them or speaking to them in groups is regardless of what you're doing, good, bad, neutral, you're role modeling. Your behavior is basically setting the standard for what's acceptable when you're around me, what's acceptable on my team, and what's acceptable in this organization. And when you have leaders who deny uh, that emotions and feelings, which are an integral part of human life, if you deny them in the workplace, this it just goes underground. Just because you don't talk about things doesn't mean that they vanish. They're still there. They just show up in all kinds of behavior. And my sense of where leaders often fall down is that they think of diversity and inclusion and many other issues, but I'll focus on DNI here for a moment, that we just need to analyze the problem, we need to think of the solutions, and then we need to you know, generate some activity that shows change. And in my perspective, really what you need to do is see what's really happening, feel the impact of it, and then start having the kinds of conversations that to your point, surface the barriers to actually allowing change to happen. Now, this is the hardest work of work. I mean, a lot of things that we call work are not really work, you know, yeah. they're inputting information, they're writing reports, you know, much of it valuable, but the real work of culture change is in your head and in your heart. And if it's that's not, yeah, and if that's not where it's happening, Everything else is just a multicolored band-aid trying to cover up things that we don't want to look at and that we don't really want to deal with. Well, this is mindful leadership. This isn't complacent leadership. We apply the concept of mindful leadership to all sorts of things. For some reason, when we come to equity and inclusion, we don't tend to approach it. And it, it, it because there is a great deal of emotion tied to it. The assessment 
the assessment should lead to the concept of how we feel about it and the ability to have these really difficult conversations, not just internally, but ultimately publicly with our organizations, with the people who work with us. I can tell you for sure, though, the more we discuss the things that make us feel uncomfortable, the easier they become. That's just basic psychological science. We use that concept of exposure in any kind of phobia. We need to be able to start to do this in organizations, but my recommendation, certainly have people come in and talk, certainly do what you need to do. But, but I'd say the first or at least thing that has to occur in conjunction is some sense of leadership coaching. You and I have heard a lot of leaders speak who are very well-intentioned and kind individuals, but because they haven't done that internal work, they'll come across as tone deaf. And that's the risk. And that's where a lot of leaders will say, but I'm doing the work. I'm out there advocating but why am I getting throttled publicly? And it's because they're missing the mark because they're, they come across as tone deaf because they're not getting, because the internal work isn't done. There hasn't been that awareness. Yeah. And it's the old line, what got you here won't get you there, right? Everything that made Correct. you successful as a leader up until this point, something mm-hmm. different is required yes. from you right now, you know, and, and that's, this is a difficult thing about leadership. You know, we're, we're still using models of leadership that are anchored in like the Roman Empire's military thinking <laughs> and in industrial societies. You know, I can't tell you, you Google, I mean, anybody, Google leadership development, Google leadership. I can tell you that if it's not trillions, it's certainly, certainly billions of search results come back. And the vast majority of them are kind of tips, traits, characteristics. I mean, I'm seeing now all the lists of things that, you know, good COVID leaders need, you know, here are the seven things to lead through COVID and uncertainty. Well, what were we leading through before? And what things were we not, like, it's almost like take this vitamin pill and it'll all go away. And that's where we do such a disservice to organizations and the people who work in them because we treat leadership and leadership development as though it's a paint by numbers, you know, pick up this skill, take this course, read this writer, and you will be a leader. And there are so few leadership programs and leadership development programs in my view. And I have been in the classroom teaching and some things that I used to teach, I think I would never do that again because I really know they're not helpful. They're not designed to do what you and I are talking about, which is the deep self-knowledge, self-awareness and self-reflection. We, we also create systems where we pay leaders for quote unquote results. No one has ever given me or you or anyone a bonus or a promotion for doing self-reflective self-awareness work. It's for, you know, for me as a trainer, putting bums in seats. If I can train, <laughs> you know, 900 people on change management, whether or not any of them feel comfortable using the skills, I could be considered successful because I met a numeric number of, uh, well, obviously a number is numeric. Um, you know, I've met a target as opposed to have I actually affected change and created impact where it's most needed? What what people don't realize is that in order for us to actually produce the measurable change, a measurable change is more sustainable when when the structure internally is more sound. Any effort to make a measurable change externally 
before it's done internally, there's no internal structure to support it, that's going to collapse. And that's the dilemma with, you know, because, so that's what happens is when, when people get these measurements to see that they've done what they've done, like we've, we've hired this many people of color. Why is it that our ratings on an inclusive culture are still very, are still very low? Why is it that we can't retain uh, people of color? Uh, why is it that we're having difficulties with racism in the workplace? Because the, because what you've done is you've addressed an external piece. You've, You've hired, that's a measurable amount, but the internal structure, the infrastructure to support those decisions hasn't been done and it cannot sustain that difficulty. That concept doesn't just apply to organizations, it applies to individuals. And there's two tiers that need to happen. So number one, there has to be the internal work done within leaders. That is now modeled onto uh, their organization, and you shift culture. Then you start to figure out what you want to shift in a culture in terms of practices and why. And then you go ahead and you do that hiring. Now, both the hiring and the internal work can occur at the same time, but that internal work is often missed. And that's why that's why the concept of what we think is measurable, that's why we will get a measurable change right away. And we say, we did it. This was a success. You know, a year down the line, two years down the line, we find we're back at square one. Yeah. And, you know, where I've seen this happen, I've worked in organizations that have put uh, a, a pretty fine focus on diversity and inclusion for at least the last 15 years or so. And one of the things that I've observed is that every few years, there's a desire to have a diversity and inclusion plan, which I don't understand why it's separate from the overall strategic plan, but because um, I think it all has to fit together. But anyway, it's, it's better than no plan at all. I'll say that. But what happens often is that somebody's brought in, it could be an internal person, but somebody's brought in to talk to all the people who are Black, marginalized, disabled, LGBTQ, like let's find out from everybody who's not happy in the organization or who might have issues or could help us based on their lived experience. But we're not actually talking to everyone in the organization. So again, like we're not even getting data on what the real problem is. And this is not at all to discount the invaluable comments that people from marginalized communities need to share so that we can inform very powerful and organizational change plans around DNI. But mm -hmm. again, to even marginalize the data collection and make it seem like we're, you know, it just to me reinforces, we're going to find out all the problems that you have, and then we're going to take the data and we're going to come up with a plan to fix it. And it just perpetuates to me this idea that we're not actually working together on a common issue in which we need to look inside ourselves as to why we even need to fix these problems in the first place. So we, this speaks to the heart of most work that organizations and leaders will do when it comes to inclusion and cultural diversity is that we anthropologize anthro apologize, <laughs> say that word slowly. Um, we, we make anthropology of it? Yes, we do. Right. We, we work on wanting to understand the different without understanding ourselves. Every model of cross-cultural competence, or most of them will actually first talk about being able to identify 
the problems within yourself first, how you see the world, what's your worldview, what's your cultural identity, and what are your biases. And so the first work has to be done by first approaching, well, white people. So when we start to work on improving culture, we can't just go, we cannot just go to people who are marginalized and say, well, yes, we should ask them. What are their problems? What are their roles? But the first thing we need to do is being able to see how white people are treating those individuals. Right. We need to, we need to look at the view of, of white people within an organization to see how that works. And we see this problem show up on a regular basis. And, and far be it for me as a man to note this, but, you know, when we talk about issues of hiring women, you know, somehow we think that we've, we've addressed everything. We assume that includes women of color and it does not include women of color. Right. And that's a, a really, point. it's a really good example of a tone deaf movement. Yes, we've come far in uh, including women in the workforce and improving women in leadership, but it's not women of color. And so we still have a supremacy effect where it's still white is better. And we do find, the research actually finds that there is a pay gap between white people and people of color, uh, and even, even between white women and women of color. And so what's happened there is we haven't done that internal work. And we've only addressed diversity as it, as it applies to us, so to speak. And I say us, not me, but as to those of us who want to do that work, who are not people of color, they, we only do that work when it's tied to the diversity of our perspective. And, and what I'm going to say sounds very controversial, but it, it is true. We've come very far on certain elements of diversity. I'm not saying that it's done, but we've come far when it's come to issues of diversity, when it comes to gender, when it comes to the LGBTQ plus community. And we've been able to do that. And I think done a better job of that. And not to say that it's complete, but predominantly because white people are reflected in those groups. Where we find the greatest levels of disparity are in women of color, in people of color who belong to the LGBTQ plus community, and people from those groups will speak to that disparity. Women of color will say, uh, it's great you're working on, on, on issues of equity with women, but that doesn't include me people of color from the LGBTQ plus community will say, it's great that you're working on that, but that doesn't include me. I still feel quite excluded. And the reason those problems still exist is because that internal work has not been done. And we are looking at simply surface level issues. And frankly, as we go back to the comment that Rosie made, it's not really working on making us better people. Because at the heart of this is really a, a, a concept of self-development. So if that's the case, you know, I, I have this, this sort of maxim in my life that I can't do, I, I personally can't do anything unless I believe, I believe in it, right? So I, it has to start with belief. I then have to be committed to actually doing something. I have to believe it's possible and I have to commit to doing it. But then I also have to set up the conditions for myself to be successful, mm -hmm. right? So, you know, small, stupid example, but, you know, if I want to be healthy and fit and have a good diet, I actually need to have fruits and vegetables in the house. I can't, I, I need some kind of process to reinforce the belief that I have and the commitment that I've made. So if we take this concept into each of us making a change, many people 
first of all, don't believe that they need to, to do the work, right? So if they don't believe, they're not going to make a commitment. And if they don't make a commitment, they're not going to set up the conditions for, for success to happen. So when we talk about working at the top level of organizations with people who don't actually think that anything needs to change, what are the options? You know, is change possible? I think that's, <laughs> that's a good question. The psychological concept called readiness for change. And if you aren't ready to be able to make that change, the change isn't happening. What we can do to help those individuals along is we said before, a revolution is going to have to occur together. And this is where the power uh, happens from the bottom up. This is where we have those of us who aren't elected into positions of authority or leadership have to take on leadership ourselves to advocate for this change. We have a very big problem on our hands, whether people realize it or not. And if people want an example of how bad a problem is, you just need to look at the recent election in the United States and how close that race is, speaks to how complacent a lot of people are to the nature of racism in, in our Western society. And I, that would include us Canadians as well, too. So those of you who aren't willing to make change, I'd say start to look there and you'll see how big the problem is. But but I would say, you know, we talked previously about this top-down, bottom-up. This is where the bottom-up comes into play, where those of us who work within organizations who don't have that elected leadership role really start to push for what we want. Because sometimes change doesn't happen out of uh, leadership's personal interest. Sometimes change happens because there's a force. And it doesn't matter if that's how things happen. And that's, that's, that's the whole point of a revolution. If it happens through a force of a sense of being able to ask for what we want, to advocate for what we want, and it's simply a numbers issue, then it means us, people who are marginalized, people of color, need to start to feel more comfortable in standing up to say what we need to say. We need to counteract our own internalized racism that's that internal work yeah. to be able to continuous, continuously push for what is needed. You're reminding me, as you say that the uh, American writer, Alice Walker said that the most common way people give up their power is by thinking they don't have any. And mm. in, in my view along those lines is that I mean, it sounds like a bizarre insight to have, but I've, I just keep having this insight. And, and I recall this from years ago when I was working in mental health, where we were really focusing on, on issues around stigma. And we kept saying, well, if not us, who? Like, if we don't raise these issues, if we don't help people be seen for their full humanity, as opposed to their diagnosis, who will? And I think there's an element of that, of the sense that we feel so powerless within these organizations, even though there are policies to support, you know, whistleblowing policies and anti-harassment, anti-discrimination policies, they're not effective unless we actually reclaim the power behind them or what's needed to actually make them work. So you know, I, I guess, you know, I, I said to you at some point, like, I'd like every episode in season two to have some sort of like, and here's what you need to do. 
I'm, you know, I've been in this field for quite a few years and I'm, I'm a little bit stuck right now because I see the paths forward, but mm -hmm. we're, our, our systems are so entrenched and people are so scared of looking inside their own minds and their own hearts that maybe the job is simply at this stage for those of us who can find the courage and bravery to just share what the impact is of all of this. Because maybe part of what the change needs is, you know, going back to seeing and feeling before changing, we need to actually see what's happening. And maybe that puts a lot of pressure on people to tell their stories when it feels uncomfortable or it feels risky. But without understanding what the real cost is of these ways that we're, we're inhabiting the world that are not just and are inequitable, I think it's even, it, it, it keeps us in a stuck place around trying to start change. I agree with you. I think, I think there needs to be a increased comfort in being able to have these difficult conversations. So we are all getting to a point where we are ready to make change. That's not going to happen unless we actually agree that we are going to be working on creating a culture where we are able to have discussions that are difficult under the pretense that we are all working on making change. So we must assume now we must come to an agreement and, and I'd like to be able to create this for us and our, and our listenership is to start to have really difficult questions and conversations. So mm -hmm. if you're struggling with a concept, if you are a leader and you're listening to this, know that you have safety within our little listenership community to be able to ask a question that might be really difficult. That might be tied to your own bias I, with the understanding with the understanding that you're doing it to learn. And so anybody listening or, or, or watching that comment has to agree to be able to give that person space and give them an answer and not attack that individual. Mm. I think there has to be some sense of empathy as we talked about for the leaders who are doing this job. And this is hard work. I mean, we push so hard on leaders, but this isn't easy work. They carry a heavy burden. So when they make themselves vulnerable. Let's support them in being able to create that change so it becomes effective because we rely on them in some way to be, because they have the least amount of barriers and they are going to make the best allies. We have to be able to support them. It doesn't mean we tolerate abuse, but if somebody is asking out of the interest of learning and wanting to grow, we need to create spaces to be able to allow people that space and that opportunity. Yeah. Yeah. And when I hear create space is to notice whatever's coming up for me, like notice my discomfort, notice my desire to refute what I'm hearing and to just listen. You know, we're, we're so, we're so well-trained on being defensive and protective. And part of the work for in creating space is to just be quiet and to notice what's happening. Like if you notice what's happening in you, that to me is the thread that gets you to the place of understanding your assumptions, your beliefs, and your biases. Yes, absolutely. 150%. So the takeaway today, let's have some really honest conversations online. If you feel uh, brave enough to do so, I encourage you to take that step. We've, um, we've actually had some 
listeners comment uh, on a couple of things, uh, including the concept of the term visible minority. And that's been really wonderful to see. So please, uh, and, and, that, and that was a leader who, who had uh, made that comment. So, but I'm asking also white leaders to be able to talk about their biases. Let's work on making some shifts and start this revolution personally through conversation. It's as good a place to start as any. Uh, We'd like to thank you for, again, tuning in and listening to this uh, second episode of season two. Like us on social media. You can find us on Instagram at different.people.podcast. You can also find Raymond and I on LinkedIn, where we engage in conversations with the DNI community and with each other on these topics. And uh, if you go to our website, www.differentpeople.ca, you have the opportunity to provide comments and offer us suggestions for topics you would like us to cover in the future. Thank you very much all for tuning in. And we look forward to talking again in a couple of weeks. Thank you for spending time with us. To learn more about our work and listen to other episodes, please visit differentpeople.ca. Post-production services provided by jonathanlay.net. And thanks to Blue Eye Music for our music theme. You can reach us all through the contact information in the show notes. And new episodes of the Different People podcast are uploaded regularly to Spotify, iTunes, and Google Play. Please join us again. And until soon.